Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue in our Bibles today in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26, as we continue our series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus, with a message called, Making All Things New. There's a passage in the book of Revelation. It's, it's the second last chapter of our Bible. It begins with a statement by John, who's the author of the book. He saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth and, and the promise of what must take place in the future. And then God speaks and his voice is heard from the throne. He simply says, I am making all things new. And one day at some time yet in the future, God will complete the project he began when he first created the earth. It was his plan to fill the earth with his glory. The earth was to be and will one day be an outward expression of the inward perfection and beauty of its creator. But before God makes all things new, his plan is that the earth will pass through several stages. Well, think of it this way. Imagine you're a builder and you set out to build a house. Now that house comes into being through a series of stages. You know, the first stage begins when the backhoe shows up and it digs out the footprint, and, and then the next stage puts in the footings, and then the crawl space of the basement is poured out with concrete walls, and then the walls and the roof are added, and the wiring, the plumbing, and so on it goes. But finally, after all the stages are completed, you're going to say, you know, I've completed a new house. All things are new. Now, as with all analogies, not everything works here. In the case of God's creation, it's different than the building of a new house in, in so many different ways. We have to talk about the perfection and innocence of the original creation and then the fall and then the progressive effects of sin and then the calling of a chosen people, the coming of Christ, his suffering on the cross to make a people for himself, then his resurrection from the dead, the, the creation of the church, the second coming of Christ. I mean, all of that forms God's plan of creating a world for his glory, a world which will perfectly represent the perfection and the beauty of the creator. As amazing and, well, I guess as complicated as all of that is, everything is proceeding according to plan. Every stage of God's work moves us one step closer to completion when God will say, I am making all things new. There is one key stage before all things can be made new. God, since he creates this world for his glory, must establish a place of worship. So you remember Jesus' conversation with a woman at the well. It's found in John 4, verse 20. And she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship. See, the dispute about places of worship, well, that's been an enduring dispute. It's divided people throughout history. In answer to the woman at the well, Jesus tells her that, that a new day of worship is coming. And I want to speak about that. Before this world perfectly displays God's glory, a crucial stage must be constructed. A new era of worship must begin. <laughs> I know it seems strange that I'm going from the sufferings of Christ in this Easter series. Before I go to the resurrection, I kind of move backwards and I go all the way back into Passion Week. But I want to talk about something today that happened on, I guess, the Monday after Palm Sunday. So before we talk about the resurrection, I think it's appropriate because by his death on the cross, Jesus accomplished something significant which we must not overlook. So let me read from Mark 11, verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That is, after the events of Palm Sunday, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes back to Bethany to spend the night there. And, and I don't know about you, it always seems anticlimactic at this point in time. I mean, after Jesus' triumphal ride on Palm Sunday, you know, it seems like, you know, he just goes back and he goes back to his place where he's staying the night. But the next morning is Monday. Jesus is back again, and he makes a three-kilometer trek from Bethany to Jerusalem, and as he goes, he's hungry. And he walks up to a fig tree, and he finds no figs, and then he curses that poor fig tree. You know, critics of Christ said he had an ill temper. And so why is it that Christ cursed the fig tree? I want to take you back to an earlier time in Jesus' ministry, a time when he's telling a parable. It's found in Luke 13, verses 6 to 9. It says, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree, planted his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come to seek fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So I want you to think now of this fig tree, which will bear no fruit as a living parable, being worked out right in front of the disciples. And this is the key question. What does the tree represent? You know, some Bible teachers will say that it represents Israel, who are being disobedient and who are about to reject the Messiah. I think that's wrong. Look at the context. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and all that he did after that was go into the temple and then go straight back out to Bethany. And the next day is Monday, and according to Mark, he goes back into the temple and he creates sheer chaos and pandemonium there. And the next day is Tuesday, and he goes into the temple again, and the entire day is spent there. Well, it results in incredible controversy between him and the Jewish religious leaders. They try to trip Jesus up in his words. They do everything to challenge his authority. So that's a day of disputes, and the disputes are filled with more rancor and and more accusations. And when Tuesday ends, Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples, and he's spent the whole day there, and he goes out of Jerusalem, and he stands on the Mount of Olives, and he looks back at the temple, and he tells the disciples that not one stone is going to be left on another in that temple. And with that, he foretells the the details of the coming destruction of the temple. And then with that, he moves forward in history to tell about events that will lead to the end of the age and the Father making all things new. So from my vantage point, the tree, the fig tree, is a symbol of the temple. So having cursed the tree and said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, I mean, there's a staggering statement. The tree is a symbol of the temple. And then he walks into Jerusalem and heads straight for the temple. You see, the temple had several key areas. At the very heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go only once a year. And that place symbolized the very dwelling place of God. Now, outside of that was a place of sacrifice. And then in a place where all sacrifices could be observed was what was called the court of Israel, in which only Jewish men could participate. And outside of that was the court of women, and all of this was enclosed behind a wall. What I have described are the temple buildings or the temple complex. But surrounding this was a large open-air area, kind of like a, a large stone outdoor courtyard. 
And then surrounding the courtyard was a railing with a screen. And outside of the screen are a series of signs, and they indicate that any Gentile who goes through the screen doors to approach the temple is going to be immediately killed. And I'm assuming that's going to happen by the temple police. Now, outside of that screen, there was the court of the Gentiles, and so you get the picture. No Gentile could even come close to the temple complex. They could see through the screen from afar. That place outside the screen was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, during Passover, sheep would have to be sacrificed. And the Jewish historian Josephus estimated that some 250,000 sheep would be sacrificed. But since no sheep would have any blemish, which included any broken bone or no hint of disease at any time, no small or large defect, all these thousands of sheep would have had to have been inspected by the priests. And the rumor was around that the priests were sometimes crooked, and they were in league with the money changers, and they could reject anyone's private sacrifice at will. And so because you didn't want to drag your own animals all the way to Jerusalem, only to be rejected by the crooked priests. So what could you do? Well, you could buy temple animals. And even though that was convenient, it was pricey. First, that you had to convert your money into temple money, and that's what the money changers were for and they would rip you off. Then you'd buy temple animals, which were again sold at greatly inflated prices. Mark mentions doves on sale there. See, doves were required for the purification of women, the cleansing of those who had skin diseases, and were also used by the poor who couldn't afford more expensive sacrifices. But that would mean that the entire court of the Gentiles would be overrun with merchants during Passover. It became a stockyard along with grand banking schemes. So what was the problem? The problem is central to what Jesus was addressing. Jesus was addressing something that Isaiah spoke of regarding the very purpose of the temple. In Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 and following, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. But here it was. The Gentiles were being separated by the very nature of the temple itself. And now you can see why it is that our Lord cursed that temple. During the month of March, we'll be highlighting the international efforts of Back to the Bible Canada. Did you know that our radio program with Dr. John airs in India and neighboring countries such as Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Eastern China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iran? If ensuring that your brothers and sisters around the world have access to daily Bible teaching is important to you, you can help. Your gift toward Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would help develop and encourage pastors in India and help reach thousands of people with trusted Bible teaching programs across much of Asia and the Middle East. To support our international ministries, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I hope you see what the temple was for. It was intended for those who would be faithful, Jews, Gentiles from all the nations of the earth. They would come to Jerusalem, the place of worship, and there they would pray and seek God's face and find out that the God of Israel could be their God as well. 
You know, when the first temple was built, Solomon prayed, and it's recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 32 to 33. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. That was the purpose of the temple. It was an evangelistic call to the nations. Instead, the nations were being driven from the temple by cattle and by greed. And Jesus, seeing this, walks into the temple courts and he shouts out with words from Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he's kicking over chairs and birds are flying everywhere and coins are rolling on the floor. And well, you imagine the pandemonium A great many Bible teachers have called that event the cleansing of the temple. They assume that Jesus is entering the temple as a reformer. But by now, we should all see that he's doing nothing of the sort. You know, if he was trying to cleanse the temple, well, frankly, he failed. For within several hours, all the tables would have been set up again and business would have gone on as usual. No, no. Jesus didn't go into the temple as a reformer. He entered as a prophet. He was announcing that God was condemning the temple. He was saying, just like he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He's announcing the reason for God's curse. His house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so as God has patiently dug around that tree many times and still it bore no fruit, now the ax was laid at the root of the tree. See, I need to stop here for a moment and I hope you can see the point of application for all Christians today. You know, if our church life is only for us, if we're happy with our present size, no longer care about the lost, for those who have no room to bind themselves to the Lord, do you not think that we will suffer the same fate? I know I say this because it's so easy to become satisfied and not call to God for the sake of the lost. And Jesus went to Calvary for the sake of the lost. Your place of worship must make room for the lost. Now, that evening was Monday evening, and Jesus had two amazing encounters. See, on Sunday, he announced that he was the Messiah, and on Monday, he condemned the temple. And the next day is Tuesday, and Jesus walks back from Bethany and going on what has now become a familiar route. And and what happened on that day? Well, I'm reading Mark 11, 20 to 21. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. See, the tree, just as Jesus had said, would never bear figs again. It will never be fruitful again. The same was true of the temple. It will never again be a spiritual harvest from the temple. But if that's true, well, what of faithful Jews and what of the the seeking Gentiles? If God created the world for his glory, is that agenda now over? Well, the answer must be that it's not over, not even in the least. See, there's the necessary step of making all things new. Notice what Jesus says in Mark 11, 22 to 23. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. You know, I've noticed how often this passage has been pulled out of its wider context. 
I've heard many sermons on the idea that we should simply, in faith, speak to the mountains in our lives, you know, whatever they be, mountains of, you know, poverty or of disease or bad marks in school, I guess. But whatever the impossible situation we're facing, well, it's going to be removed. Let me say at the outset, there are, of course, many stunning promises made to believers regarding prayer. I encourage us to be faithful in prayer. God answers our prayer. But our Bible should not be abused to make it say what we want it to say. So what is the wider context of Mark 11, 23 and 24? Well, the answer, in my estimation, has everything to do with the phrase, this mountain. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, whoever says to any old mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. He says, whoever says to this mountain, clearly he has a very specific mountain in view. So what mountain is he referring to? Well, please notice he's not referring to some mountain way out in the distance. I mean, he was not pointing out at the skyline somewhere. He says, this mountain. See, that leads me to believe that the only mountain he could have been referring to is the one he's actually looking at, and that mountain is the Temple Mount. If anyone says to the Temple Mount, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. What Jesus is announcing then is that the temple will be removed. It's going to be thrown away. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and if you go to that mountain, the Temple Mount, Today, you're going to see no temple there. Jesus announced it would be removed, and it has been. And in so doing, he announces the end of the need to pray toward this house. And that's because the sacrifices and offerings made in that temple would become unnecessary. His one offering of himself on the cross would render useless all the offerings and sacrifices that have been made up till that point in time. And in the end, it would be faith and not a ritual that would matter. Let me take you back to the woman at the well. You remember the question she asked Jesus. Should we worship on Mount Gerizim or should we worship on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? And let me quote Jesus' answer. John 4, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And so Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then he cursed the fig tree in the temple, ended all sacrifices, and with his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, he has made all things new. He condemned the temple as unclean. And as the week wore on by Thursday, he would gather his disciples into the upper room and celebrate the Jewish Passover. He took the traditional Passover elements and replaced them with the sacrifice of his own body and blood. Look at it this way. Jesus came to Jerusalem to replace the temple sacrifice with his sacrifice, and that, to this day, has been accomplished. Even when the Jewish people on this day celebrate Passover, they do it without a sacrifice, because Jesus ended the sacrificial system, and he cast it into the sea. I have been to Jerusalem, and I've talked to people in the Temple Institute as as they've discussed with me the plans to rebuild the temple. But Jesus cast it into the sea. On the Temple Mount is a mosque built to the concept of a God that is foreign to the God of Scripture. Why? 
because when Jesus came and died on the cross, he ended sacrifices and offerings for all time. His sacrifice of himself at Passover not only ended the need for the temple, his cursing of the fig tree ended the possibility of temple sacrifices. So what does that all mean? We know from the second last chapter of our Bible that in the end, God will make all things new. We also learn that God is in stages making all things new. Therefore, during Passion Week, Jesus announced a new era of worship. You see, Jesus ended external rituals. He replaced it with his sacrifice. Jesus also ended the need for a fruitless temple. He replaced it with the fruitfulness of faith in him. And Jesus ended the need for a Passover observance. He replaced it with a reminder of genuine deliverance that came through his body and his blood. So what do I mean by all of that? Jesus always knew that the real deliverance from bondage had to involve forgiveness, reconciliation, and the fruit of a transformed life. And that's the story of Easter. Jesus opened up a new era of worship where now we approach God not in a location, but through his precious blood and by his broken body. And he invites us to come to him and seek forgiveness through his suffering and to be invited into the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of God, through his body and his blood. That's the story of Easter. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. All things are being made new, and we are invited to worship him wherever we are, because Christ has made all places holy through his blood. John, let me ask you a question that might be on other people's minds. Do you believe that the temple will be rebuilt? Yeah. You know, I can almost hear someone saying, Ben, you know, after I've preached this sermon that, you know, I don't believe that the temple will ever be rebuilt. And because I'm a premillennialist, um, I actually believe that there is a literal 1,000 year of reign of Christ coming. And I know that the uh, last chapters of the book of Ezekiel describe a rebuilt temple, and I believe that it will be rebuilt during that time period. So I guess what I should have said is I don't believe that the temple will be rebuilt in our era during our time period, but when God makes all things new or when the millennium begins, I believe that will be a different era, and then things will change at that point in time. So that's a good clarification. Thanks for asking. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. With so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel, we want to share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel Experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other, an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's Royal Palace, worship at the Garden Tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, and special musical guests. 
The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. Registration is limited, so call back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash Israel Experience.